All right, you may be seated. And as you find your seat, go ahead and grab a Bible in the pew or grab your Bible that you brought with you. Or even better than that, if you don't have a Bible, you can take that one and make it your own. Or you can get the YouVersion Bible app. It's a fantastic Bible app that you can download if you have a phone this morning. But whatever Bible you have, go ahead and make your way to Galatians chapter 2. We're spending this fall walking through this this book that is actually a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a group of churches in this region known as Galatians. That's why it's called Galatians. You find it in the New Testament, which is the second part of the Bible, if you're new to the Bible. And uh, you'll find it right in between some of Paul's other letters to other churches. So it's right in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then there's Galatians, and then you'll, uh, if you go too far, you'll hit Ephesians. So go ahead and make your way there. If you were with us last week, you know that one of the, the amazing truths that the book of Galatians, really more than any other book, reveals to us in many, many different ways is this incredible truth of God's amazing grace that he has given to us. We talked about this last week, and we talked about this shocking truth that, that we saw in Galatians chapter 1. That truth is this, that God's pleasure in us and his approval of us is not based on our background or our achievements or our work done for him. That is a shocking truth. In other words, uh, we are unable because of our sin, because each one of us has lived a life in rebellion to God, we are unable to do anything to merit God's approval or his favor. There's nothing that we can do, but instead he has provided his approval. He has provided salvation, freedom from sin as an act of his grace, this incredibly free grace. He has done everything that we need for our salvation. This is Paul's main point in the book of Galatians, but you have to remember the reason that Paul is writing the book of Galatians is that the Christians then just 20, 30 years after the time of Jesus, and the Christians today still struggle to believe that truth. We, we contend, in each one of us, there's a tendency, a natural tendency, to drift away from this unbelievably good news that God has provided salvation by grace and that we cannot earn it on our own. We each are, have a tendency to drift away from that truth. Um, there was a time when I was in college that me and a couple of my friends, my college friends, did what college friends do, and that's, we don't do sometimes the smartest things, right? So it was 10 o'clock at night, we had just gotten done at a concert, and we decided, you know what, it'd be a great time for us to go on a really lengthy road trip overnight. So we say, that's a great idea, and we begin to do this. We each take turns, right? You take a shift, and my shift of driving came at about 2 a.m., okay? Well, as you road trips go, at the beginning, they're always full of excitement. Anybody that's been on a road trip, especially if you're in college and you're doing that with your friends, there's a lot of adrenaline running at the beginning. You're excited. You've got the road trip playlist going. It's exciting. Listening to great music. You're doing fun things. You're talking with one another. Well, that's about how it started at 2 a.m., but by about 3 a.m., the inevitable began to happen. Everybody else began to go to sleep. The adrenaline all of a sudden came down and uh, no longer did our radio station work, so I had to find something else. And I can remember listening to Delilah, which if you remember that Delilah at night, it was like love songs from the 70s and 80s that had one purpose, and that was to put you to sleep. It's the only station I could find. So I'm listening to that music, and, and over uh, time, what happens? I began to drift to sleep. Well, the next thing I remember is 
that loud noise that you hear on the highway. Bum, 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 bum. My car is veering. It startles me, and I wake up, and literally our car is on the side, off the road, on the side. We're headed toward a pasture in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas, okay? This was a bad moment. I startled, and by the grace of God, I mean that. There's no cars around us. I swerve, and we come back onto the road, and we are safe. It wakes all my friends up. They didn't let me have another shift that night. I was done after that. If those, I've never been more thankful for, for those things. I was asking, I was like, what are those things called? I didn't know, but David uh, Bush, he knows all the random facts. So if you ever need a random knowledge of a, a definition of a word, he knows it. And it was called a what, David? Rumble strip, okay? I've never been as thankful for a rumble strip in my life. That rumble strip has one purpose. It is to keep a driver from drifting. Well, in Galatians chapter 2, we're going to see that, that each one of us, who even those of us who are Christians, we have a tendency to, to drift away from the gospel in one of two directions. But thankfully, Paul, in this passage, provides us some teaching that, that acts like a rumble strip. It helps us to, to, to wake up to our drift. It helps us to, to correct course. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. There's two different passages that, that account two different events that, that happened in the life of Paul. And then he finishes out with that teaching that Eric read just a minute ago. And so I want us to look at these two events. And then we'll look at what Paul says at the end to kind of bring it all together. If you would, read with me Galatians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. The Word of God says this. Then after 14 years, this is Paul talking about kind of he had come to know Christ. He was become a minister of the gospel. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. <clears throat> I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's talking about the Gentiles, anyone that's not a Jew, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, talking about the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So this is the first event that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 2. And in this event, we see the first drift. We see the first natural tendency for those of us, even who are walking with Christ, to, to drift away from the gospel, and that's this. It is practicing the right behaviors, but believing a lie. 
It is the drift of practicing the right behaviors, but doing so based on a false truth. Now, what happens in this passage is that that Paul is going to Jerusalem because there needs to be a conversation with Peter, James, and John. As he is going out and doing his ministry among the Gentiles, many of the Gentiles are coming to faith. Many people are giving their lives to Christ, and yet there's this question that comes up. What must these Gentiles do to be saved? Is it truly in Christ alone, or do they have to to add on other things to their salvation in order to, to truly experience God's salvation? Now, for Paul, the answer to that question was absolutely clear. There was no hesitation on Paul's part. He knew that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the message of Paul throughout the New Testament. He is confident of that. But the issue is that there are these Judaizers, and we talked about these individuals last week. These Judaizers were were coming in, and everywhere that Paul was leading the Gentiles to Christ, they were coming in after Paul and saying, hey, Paul got half the message right. Yes, you need to believe in Christ. Yes, you need to put your trust in Christ, but you also need to do all of these Jewish customs. You need to, if you're a guy, you need to be circumcised. You need to go through all these hoops if you're really going to experience salvation at the end. What made this even a greater problem is that these Judaizers in all these places were saying, hey, we're from Jerusalem. We have the backing of of Peter and James and John, who at that time were the pillars of this new Christian movement. So they're coming in and they're undercutting Paul's message. And so finally, Paul in this passage says, I have had enough. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and talk to Peter and James and John once and for all. We need to make this clear. But he does so in an interesting way. What does it say he he does? It says he brings along with him a test case. He brings along Titus. Now, for those of you that don't know Titus, there's a book in the Bible that's written to Titus, but Titus is a Gentile believer who is not circumcised. And so what he does, he says, we can talk about these things in the abstract. A lot of people love to do that about theology. Let's talk about them in the abstract. But at the end of the day, he knows he's talking about human souls. And so he says, Titus, come with me. We're going to go face Peter, James, and John, and we're going to see what they do. If I'm Titus, I'm thinking, I sure hope this goes well, right? I do not want to be circumcised, and this is not a good thing. But this is a, it's a major, major moment in the New Testament. Peter, James, John, Paul, all of the people together making this decision, what must a Gentile do to be saved? Paul is certain it's only by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. What will they do? Well, thankfully, we find in this passage that that they agree with Paul. But here's the thing. The reason Paul makes a big deal about this is he knows there's a tendency in each one of us, and from the very beginning of Christianity, there was this tendency to believe my salvation cannot be truly an act of God's grace. I can't just receive it. I can't just put my trust in Jesus. I have to bring something to the table. I have to do something to merit or earn God's favor. I have to clean myself up. I have to do enough good works. There's always been this tendency. So Paul wants to, from the very beginning, nip it, right? He wants to to stop it right at the very beginning. We see this drift throughout history where some people have said, yes, you can become a Christian, but you also really um, need to, to do certain things. 
You need to be part of a, a political movement if you're really a Christian. If, if you're really saved, uh, you have to be baptized. If you're really saved, you have to be able to speak in tongues. If you're really saved, you need Jesus plus something else. You need to have Jesus plus go to this church. Be part of this movement. Jesus plus your works. You need to live by this list of do's and don'ts. If you're really going to be saved, it takes Jesus' work and your work. And so there's this tendency within each one of us, but Paul says no. In verse 5, he says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What does Paul do? He says, I'm like one of those, those bumps on the side of the highway. Anytime you may veer and say, well, if I can just add this, he says, no. You can't add anything to the work that God has already accomplished. And thankfully, Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the church, it says that they agreed with Paul. They said, Titus doesn't have to be circumcised. Paul says, they added nothing to my gospel. And instead, they gave the right hand of fellowship, which that is a, a much more meaningful thing than when we shake hands. The right hand of fellowship says, you have our full backing. We are with you, not with those Judaizers. So this was a very significant moment. All of us tend to drift toward wanting to earn God's favor, to earn his love. Paul says, no, be careful of that drift. Let's look at a second scenario, if you would. Read with me in verse 11. It says this, this is a, a down the road, this is after this event. It says, but when Cephas, talking about Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews. Now, this is the second drift that we see, and it's a drift in the opposite direction, okay? So if the Judaizers were those who, who had the right behaviors, right? It's not that they were bad behaviors. The Judaizers weren't doing bad things. The problem is they were linked with the wrong belief, right? This belief that we can somehow merit God's favor, that we can earn his love. If that's one drift, we see the other drift right here, and that's this, believing the truth, having a right truth, but behaving the wrong way, right? It's the opposite drift. This is one of the craziest stories that you'll find in the Bible because in essence what you have is the, the, the battle royale between two of the New Testament's greatest people. You have the Apostle Paul confronting the Apostle Peter. If you don't like confrontation, imagine being in that room, right? I mean, this would have been incredibly tense. Everyone respected these two men. You think about Peter. Peter was the first one to say, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Peter is the one that, that sees Jesus walking on the water and boldly just says, I can walk on the water too, and begins to step toward Jesus. Peter is the one that tries to protect Jesus when he was betrayed and cuts off the guy's ear. Peter is the guy that gave the very first Christian sermon of which thousands of people came to know Christ. Peter is the leader of the disciples, and yet what does Paul say? I confronted him to his face. Now, what's going on here? Well, if the Judaizers represent those of us who are doing good things, but, 
but it's linked to this wrong belief that we have to earn God's favor. Peter in this passage represents each one of us who has the right belief, right? We believe the gospel. We know the truth of the gospel, but we find ourselves drifting towards the wrong behavior. Our word for that in in our normal vocabulary is what? Hypocrite. We know the right thing. We believe the right thing, but we don't do the right thing. Our, Our actions don't line up with our beliefs. That's the essence of a hypocrite. It's clear that Peter had a right understanding of the gospel, I mean, just one passage before this, what did he say? Yes, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Peter knew the gospel. Peter preached the gospel. And yet, in this moment, what happens? It says that when Judaizers came to town, when they showed up in Antioch, he had been sitting with Gentiles, uh, eating with Gentiles, hanging out with Gentiles. But when these Judaizers come, what does it say? It says, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter drifted. He drifted away from the truth. He, he didn't associate with the Gentiles. He, he stepped back and no longer did he eat with them. And before long, he wasn't having anything to do with them. Because of why? Because he feared the circumcision party. He feared the Judaizers. He had a fear of man and what they would think of him, what they would do with him. I don't know about you, but I am very grateful that the Bible, when it talks about its heroes, right? Really, the Bible only has one true hero, and that is Jesus. But even these others that we see as heroes, when the Bible talks about these individuals, it never paints them as being perfect. It gives us a realistic picture of even the heroes of the Bible. Peter is a man who knew the gospel. He preached the gospel, but he drifted from the gospel. His actions weren't always in alignment with that truth. And that's what Paul is so angry about. In verse 14 it says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now friends, if this is true of Peter, is it not also true of each one of us in this room? Is it not true that there are times where our lives, maybe it's an action, maybe it's a behavior, maybe it's a motive, but it does not line up with what we truly believe about the gospel. It doesn't line up with our faith in Jesus Christ. This happens with the Christian who knows mentally that they have the approval of God, that they didn't earn it, but all of a sudden they find themselves dying to earn the approval of of others. They find themselves dying to to be approved in their success and in their life and their family and everything else. It's the Christian who knows their satisfaction is in Jesus alone, and yet they find themselves drifting toward looking for satisfaction in a life of sexual immorality. They know the truth, but their life is not in alignment with that truth. It's the Christian that knows that Jesus is their security. That their security can only be found in Jesus alone. But what happens? We drift and we begin to look for security in our bank account, in our retirement, and all of these things. We think if I can just have this, then I'll truly be secure. We add to Jesus. It's the same thing as the Judaizers. It's the Christian who knows that the gospel brings a diversity of people under one family and the family of God, and yet. We sit here and we say in our own corners where the Republicans just hang out with the Republicans and don't listen to the Democrats, and the Democrats don't listen to the Republicans. One ethnicity doesn't eat with the other ethnicity. We don't spend time together. Our life isn't in alignment with what we truly believe about the gospel. 
This happens in a number of ways. And I would simply ask you this morning, in what way are you drifting today? In what way are you drifting? What areas of your life are, like Paul says, out of line with the gospel that you believe? In what ways are you being a hypocrite? Because here's the thing, if you're being a hypocrite just like Peter, it's going to influence those around you. In what ways are you, is your life out of line with the gospel? By God's grace, he's put Paul here to help Peter, but he's also put Paul here to help each one of us to see that we're drifting. I don't know about you, but I am thankful for those people that I have in my life that are like Paul. We all need Pauls in our life, do we not? We need people that will come to us and they will be willing to, to say the hard things. They're willing to, to speak when they see our life is not in alignment with the gospel. When they see that our, our dating relationship isn't in alignment with the gospel. When they see the way we use our money is not in alignment with the gospel. When they see our behavior at work or with our families is not in alignment with the gospel. We need Paul's in our life to say, hey, you're drifting. You're drifting. You're drifting. I'm in incredibly grateful that Rachel will do that in our house. When I am not living my life in alignment with the gospel, Rachel will speak that to me. I'm grateful that Mike will do that here at the office during the work week. I'm grateful I've got a group of men in our church that I meet with weekly that are willing to ask those questions. I'm grateful for my friend from college, Jeff, who's actually here today, who will call me at least once a month and we'll talk about these things. Where is your life out of line with the gospel? Do you have any pause in your life that you're opening your life to say, hey, you're out of line with the gospel. We all have this tendency to drift. So what teaching can keep us centered? What teaching can keep us on the middle road of faith? We read that in verse 15 through 21. This is what Eric read earlier. It says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? It's saying, is Christ in some way uh, opening the door for sin by, by this incredible act of grace? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I, I prove myself not to be a person that ever truly received his grace. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, this is an incredible passage. This is full of so much content that we could dig into. But today, I just want you to simply focus on one word in that passage, and I think it's a central word to this whole question, and it's the word faith. You see it a number of times there. Faith is crucial to understand because here's the thing. A life of faith is what brings together right belief and right behavior. If by faith we have the right belief and by faith we have right behavior. So on the one hand, you see faith is the key to right belief in verse 16. What does it say? Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through what? 
through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul's answer to those who are tempted to, to drift off in this direction, thinking that they have to add something to salvation, is he says this, it's not going to happen. You are never going to be justified by the works of the law. Now that word justified is an important word. We're going to look at it next week. But in essence, what he's saying is this. You are never going to be declared righteous. You're never going to be right before God, loved by God, approved by God for all of eternity based on the works of the law. You cannot earn it. You can't do enough of the law to get to that place. He says it's just not going to happen. The reason for this is that the law was never meant to save us from our sin. The law was there to show us our sin. The law is not there. It does not have the power to free you of sin. It does not have the power to make you right with God. It simply shows us we're not right with God. When you go to the Ten Commandments, it doesn't take long to see, man, I have already broken these. Then you get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, well, it's not just actually about killing somebody. It's about hating them. You're like, oh, well, then I've definitely failed. I failed yesterday. My goodness. The law is there to show us that we cannot earn our salvation. as We are sinners who are separated from God, and that's what the law shows us. It shows us that the right judgment for our sin is death, and we're stuck in it. That's not great news this morning, but then God does something extraordinary. I love what David did this morning, but God. God did something extraordinary in that he made a way for us to be declared right with him. He made a way for us to be approved by him. How would he do that? Let's be honest. How can God look at you or me and all of our sin and all of our guilt and say, not guilty? How can he be a true God and a just God, a just judge that deals with evil and look at us who sin in many ways and say, totally innocent? Well, if it's based on what we do with the law, he can't. But thankfully, that's why Paul says the only way he can do that is solely on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. He says you cannot earn your salvation. How do you respond to this incredible grace that I've given you? He says the only response you can do is to step out and put your faith in me. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? It means to put all of your hope, to put all of your security, all of your trust, all of your confidence, to put it entirely in Jesus and what he has accomplished for you. You see, when we do that, when we put our trust in Jesus, the Bible tells us an amazing divine transaction happens. You read about this in 2 Corinthians 5. It says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now, friends, I know if you have been at First Death for a long time, you've heard this over and over again, but I hope this never gets old to you. Here's what that means. It means that God took all that was in your account, okay? He took all of your sin. He took all of your guilt. He took all of the judgment due your sin. He took all the penalty due your sin, all your death that was due your sin. And what does it say? It means that he poured it out on his own very son, Jesus Christ. He took all that was on our account and he put it on Jesus on the cross. That is why Jesus gave himself for us. He took the punishment for sin that we deserve. But that's only the first part of that transaction. Because there's, it gets even better. What does he say? God made him who, be, who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So not only does Jesus take upon himself our sin, but what does God do? He takes the perfect, sinless righteousness of his son, and he 
credits that to our account. He puts Christ in us. So that in the same way this morning that God can look at his son and say, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. You have my full approval. He now can look at each one of us who have put our faith in him and look at us and he says, you are my son and daughter with whom I am well pleased. You have my full approval. We receive this incredible news by faith. I don't normally bring up catechisms, but I want you to listen to this uh, question in the Heidelberg Catechism. It's question number 60. The question is simply this, how are you righteous before God? Now I want you to think about your own answer to that. How would you answer that? How are you righteous before God this morning? The Catechism says this, it is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. In spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them, and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, imputing to me his righteousness and holiness, as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful." having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me, if I only accept such favor with a trusting heart. You see, the key to right belief, the key to not drifting, is to live by faith. We are justified by faith. This is incredible news this morning. But what if that's not the end of the story? I think some of us see faith as what we needed to do at salvation. But what if faith is not only there to bring us into God's kingdom, but what if faith is the very central piece to how we live our life day to day, moment by moment? Because that's what Paul says. He says, not only are we justified by faith, but look at verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, this is a loaded passage, but what is the point? He says, just as you are justified by faith, now if you're going to live your life as a Christian where your right behavior matches up with your right belief, it's going to happen how? By faith in Jesus Christ. By you daily submitting yourself to Jesus, by you daily trusting in Jesus and, and putting your confidence in Jesus, it's a daily thing that he must do. When Jesus invades your life, you will never be the same. That's why he says, does this, does this grace open the door to sin? He says, certainly not. If you know Jesus, that old you is dead. That old you was crucified with Christ. If he were looking at me, he'd say, that old Ryan that was, that was striving to earn God's favor. That old Ryan that was, was powerless to battle sin. That old Ryan that was stuck going through those church motions. That old Ryan that sought to gain my approval through all his works. That old Ryan is crucified. But now, there's a new creation. A Ryan that has me. And this new life Ryan lives, he lives by faith in me on a daily basis. The same is true of you. When Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't just move around the furniture. He tears the old down, the old dies, and the new comes to life. Today, are you by faith walking with Jesus? 
if you're a Christian, not just did you have faith when you were saved, but today are you walking by faith? Are you bringing into, your, into alignment your behavior with your beliefs? He says you can do this only by faith, by trusting in Jesus. Jesus is not done working in your life. Jesus is working today to empower you, to strengthen you, to live out the life that he's called you to live. And so this morning, we're going to close our time together, but here's my simple question. First, have you received God's incredible gift of salvation by faith? As I was praying for many of you this week, I know there are many of you this morning that have kind of been on the fence. You're kind of thinking, "I'm, I'm kind of in this Christian thing, and I'm kind of not. How long will it take you to see that your own efforts and your own intellect and your own background are not enough? Nothing you do can bring you into relationship with God. But friend, the good news is God has done everything that is necessary. All you have to do is place your trust in him. You have to give Jesus your life. May you do so today. If you're here and you're a Christian, you you have placed your faith in Jesus, my question for you is this, are you living by faith today? Are your behaviors in alignment with what you say you believe? Are you clinging to Jesus today? Are you trusting in Jesus today? Is he the ultimate thing in your life today? That's the one thing that will keep you from drifting away from the gospel with your behavior. This morning, my prayer for each one of us is that we would be a church that lives by faith. Not just a church that was justified by faith, but a church that lives by faith, clinging to Christ every step of the way.